Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Kim Sherwood, author of the new book, Double or Nothing, James Bond is Missing and Time is Running Out. Uh, Kim, welcome to Bookstuck. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the book. So this is a continuation of the James Bond series authorised by Ian Fleming's estate. That's right. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey. I've been a Bond fan all of my life, and this is quite literally a lifelong dream come true to get to contribute to the Bond canon. And, I mean, it comes exactly 70 years after the first Bond novel, Casino Royale, published in 1953. So this is a long stretch uh, of interest uh, in James Bond for readers. That's right. It's such an incredible legacy when you think about it. There are very few characters who outgrow their author in this way. And of course, we've had Bond evolve on the screen, and that's part of what's made the character so enduring. But I really do think that Bond exists separately of the books, of the movies. Bond is his own person in popular imagination, and that's a really rare achievement. And it's one of the things that always strikes me, though, is that that character and the, the essence of the book is right there from the very beginning. That that famous first line in Casino Royale of the scent and smoke and sweat of a casino and nauseating at three in the morning. There's, there's something essential about Bond that is there right from the start. Oh, I totally agree. And that's my favourite opening line of any book, partly because, as you say, it really sets the tone. There's an authority to that. This is a narrative voice who knows that. They've experienced the, the sensations of being a, at a casino at three in the morning. You totally trust them. Um, and there's also a kind of, there's a coolness to it, an assuredness to it, um, which just sums up Bond's character, while at the same time, what he's being cool and assured about is the fact that um, it's nauseating, you know, not that it's fun. So there's also this kind of um, gritty vulnerability that comes across. So it does so much, that first sentence. So tell us about the, uh, the basic setup of Double or Nothing. At the start of the book, James Bond is missing. MI6 don't know if he's been uh, captured or even killed. And there's a new ensemble cast of 00 agents who are trying to find him. So we have 003, Johanna Harwood, 004, Joseph Dryden, and 009, Sid Bashir. And they are trying to find Bond while also trying to avert a climate catastrophe. And when when is the book set? Because, I mean, we still have Bond. We still have uh, Money Penny. They, if we were being literal about it, they would be a hundred now. Um, so, so how so how do you how do you navigate these characters from the fifties um, emerging into our world? So, I have a personal headcanon of James Bond, where essentially Double or Nothing takes place in the present day, and we have these new Double O agents, as I mentioned, alongside Double O Seven. So I've modernised Bond's character and Money Penny and a few other old favourites. And in my mind, Double or Nothing sits in dialogue with Fleming's novels. So I have my own version of Fleming's novels, and that's what I mean by headcanon, that take place in the 90s and 2000s, directly preceding Double or Nothing. So in my head, for example, in Moonraker, instead of um, Nazis just after the war, it's Nazis 70 years on. Um, in some ways, it doesn't take too much of a stretch, sadly to update the politics of those books because Ian Fleming was writing about concerns that have remained with us. 
Yeah, and there are some nice sly references in there that uh, that I enjoyed. That uh, you have references to the to the octopus at one stage, which kind of brings up octopusy. There's the brutalist architecture of the Barbican, which has resonance for Goldfinger. Um, there's there's the private military company, which is which in many ways is a nod to Spectre. And there are some nice jokes as well that in there that. At 009, wearing his cheap Casio watch is not something I think that Fleming would have approved of. <laughs> but you've got to love a Casio watch. Oh, and there's that um, Casio model. I promise I'm not being paid by Casio, but um, there's the Casio Royale, which is based on Roger Moore's Seiko watch, uh, which I actually just bought my husband for his birthday. So there's a few, uh, there's a few unexpected Bond links. Um, the Casio, oddly. But I wanted to put in all of those Easter eggs, you know, to the novels and to the films. Uh, partly just because I'm such a fan and it made me laugh to do it, but also because I really wanted Double or Nothing to feel like a fresh take that's at the same time rooted in the history of Bond. So I wanted it to have that flavour and feeling of Fleming's world while also representing our contemporary society. Yeah, and I guess that, I mean, the biggest uh, change is that new female double O, Joanna Harwood. That, that's not something that would have been there in 1953. That's right. And I, in some ways, I, I took my cue from Fleming because you're absolutely right. You know, in the original novels, we don't have a double O female character and we've not had a double O main female character in the, in the films, you know, as our principal protagonist either. So that's something that I am bringing that's new. But what Fleming does have, which is such an essential ingredient of the Bond series, is the role of the Bond girl. And yes, we can, we can look at that term and wonder about it today. But at its heart, it means central female characters who have their own agency in the novels, their own backstories, their own motivations. You know, Fleming writes some really memorable female characters. But of course, they, they're not the main character. They're not in the spotlight. They're in the shadow and they're supporting Bond. So what I really wanted to try and do was to move the female character into the spotlight and have a female double O as the main character, especially as a female Bond fan myself. You know, I've loved Bond all my life, like I said. And when I was a little kid, I used to uh, play imaginary games, you know, spying on my neighbours. I would pretend I was James Bond. I wouldn't pretend I was a Bond girl. And that's no insult to Bond girls, but nobody aspires to be the supporting character. You want to be the main character of your own story. And I was really happy to have the opportunity to do that in Double or Nothing and create the character of Joanna Harwood. I mean, it, it is one of the things that often gets missed, it seems to me, in the original Flemings, that quite often it's the, the female characters like Vesper in Casino Royale or Rosa Klebin from Russia with Love or the, uh, that, that actually end up tricking and outwitting Bond or, or as in Thunderball, where he, but he literally has his life saved uh, by, the, by, the, by the female character. So. Uh, exactly as you say, th these are characters with agency right there from the beginning. Absolutely, and I, I, c I couldn't agree more. And I think it is overlooked in the books. His female characters, it's worth just looking at how he um, introduces female characters. If, if people haven't read the Fleming novels for a while, or maybe even you're a first-time reader, slow down whenever a new female character is introduced, because what Bond often does is try to imagine into their perspective looking at him. So immediately we have this almost reversed male gaze and often what he imagines in their eyes is them looking at him uh, there's this great moment is it domino maybe in thunderball she she thinks or he imagines her thinking and um, i've got my life to lead and i know where i'm going 
So the fact that Fleming is giving those kinds of lines and that kind of agency to female characters in the 50s and 60s, and as you say, they're often getting him out of scrapes and saving his life, and often it's their mission that he joins them on. I think that Fleming was quite unusual for doing that in his time and really deserves a lot of credit for it. And as you say, one of the other elements of this is that the climate emergency uh, is a major plot line here. What, what um, made you choose that? Well, it's such a challenge choosing a Bond villain because there's been so many iconic villains in the series. But again, I looked at Fleming for my cue because he always wrote about the greatest threats of his time, whether they were ideological, like the fear of communism, or whether they were very practical, like the fear of the bomb. And for me, um, you know, as for many people, my greatest fear on a global scale right now is the climate crisis and what the future will look like. So that felt like a fitting um, force of antagonism in the novel. And then the question is, how do you shrink that down onto a human scale? Because the climate crisis is, as I say, it's so global, it's so huge. Um, and this, I think, is one of the main reasons that Bond has remained so popular, because the Bond stories do shrink down global conflicts to a manageable human scale. So instead of um, capitalism versus communism, we have Bond versus Rosa Klebb. You know, we, we shrink things down to a manageable scale. And that's what I tried to do with my villain, Sir Bertram Paradise, who is a tech billionaire who claims that he has the technology to halt the climate crisis. And the double O agents are trying to work out if he is as saintly as he seems. Yeah, and you, you mentioned Moonraker earlier that uh, Sir Bertram Paradise, like uh, Sir Hugo Drax in Moonraker, has that promise of technology to save Britain that just seems to be, and in fact is, too good to be true. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, and there's a, there's a moment in the book where M, or my version of M, comments that, you know, when something seems too good to be true, it usually is. Um, and that's what the, um, the, the double O section under Moneypenny are now trying to work out about paradise. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting that uh, you talk about Fleming's um, interest in these broader areas. You mentioned the kind of the nuclear, but e even the environmental um, concerns are something that Fleming himself picked up on. I, I think one of my favourite of all the Fleming stories is the Hildebrand rarity, which has this chilling scene where he's, he poisons the sea at the uh, the behest of this, well, what was then a millionaire, today we would describe as a billionaire. Um, and he was very, he was very interested in the the work of people like Jacques Cousteau and so on. So, so you are picking up on concerns that are right. This, in other words, this is not something which is very modish on your part. Uh, there is a definite con uh, continuity with Fleming's own concerns. Absolutely, and I think you can really see in his descriptions. I love Fleming's prose style. Um, in some ways, I would say he's an underrated writer, which might sound you know, silly because he created James Bond, but I think he's an underrated stylist. And part of what he does that I love so much is how he describes the natural world, particularly um, the ocean and scuba diving and this kind of underwater world that he brings to life so vividly. And I think you can really feel his love for it and how important it was for him. So I think you're absolutely right. It very much is a connective tissue between Double or Nothing and Ian Fleming's concerns. And I, I guess that, I mean, it's fascinating, that element about him being taken for granted for as, as a writer. I mean, th there is astonishing versatility, isn't there, in Fleming, not just the, the Bond books, but the, the, the travel writing brought together as thrilling cities, children's stories. Uh, I, I don't think there's, there's any one of our generation that doesn't think of the 
the film version of, uh, of certainly of my generation, of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, um, which he wrote, he wrote the original story for. That's right. And I think versatility is such a good way to describe it, because even within the Bond books, one thing I've been really taken by um, now that I'm you know, rereading them and I'm really examining them uh, to try and almost, uh, I guess, deconstruct them in a way. Um, I've been looking at the structure and I've been looking at how he reinvents what a Bond story is in each book. They follow a typical quest narrative. You know, Bond receives his quest from M. He leaves home. He picks up a couple of allies along the way. So we're kind of following that typical narrative. But but what Fleming is doing structurally and how that's presented to us is so interesting. So if you look at something like From Russia with Love, um, in that first part, we see Bond from the enemy's perspective. Or something like The Spy Who Loved Me, which is written in first person from the main female character's perspective. You know, he's always innovating. And I think that's that's really interesting, especially when you look at um, perhaps equivalent series today where authors might be encouraged to keep writing the same book uh, because it's been successful. Um, but what Fleming does is, I think with each book, he says, how can I continue to innovate the spy genre? Yeah, and I'd, I'd sometimes think that actually those short stories that, w- that we mentioned before, things like The Living Daylights, Quantum of Solace, uh, The Hildebrand Rarity, this, this is almost where you end up seeing Fleming at his most imaginative and his, and his most original. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, uh, I love any moment in the books where we get into Bond's interiority because he is a very interior character. And of course, that's not something that, that translates to film, but it's really present um, in the books. And I think in the short stories, particularly, he really um, lets loose on that. So I, I love in The Living Daylights that we essentially have this one-sided, entirely imagined romance. Um, but for Bond, it's so real. And, and for the reader, it's so real because we're, we're in his mind um, as he considers his kind of opposite number, this sniper who he projects all these desires and fantasies onto. It's it's a masterful example of point of view, that story. Yeah, I mean, uh, John le Carre always accused Fleming of ignoring the moral and ethical greyness of, of, of uh, the job. But, uh, but it is interesting that in a story like that one, The Living Daylights, Fleming does actually make it quite clear that Bond is being asked to commit cold-blooded murder. Uh, so these, these kind of elements... You know, are there in ways that that you just described that sometimes he is underrated or perhaps seen as as someone not thinking about these kind of things, whereas a closer reading of the kind that not that you've done in the novel, but you've done in in your broader reflections on Fleming, there's more there than you would initially think. Well, one hates to disagree with John le Carre, and in a way, perhaps it's legal, but I do feel that Bond's character is very introspective about the job. And that was something I really wanted to pick up on and interrogate in Double or Nothing. And actually, it was the impetus for some of the characters picking up on Fleming's philosophical look at what it means to be a double O. And that's something that really carries through Fleming's novel. So if you look at the beginning of Goldfinger, for example, where we have Bond, you know, sitting in an airport drinking and thinking about death because he's just killed this fairly... Um, kind of low-level villain and he's struck by the futility of it and he's he's weary and that weariness just just increases as the books uh, go on and that was something that I wanted to pick up on in Double or Nothing so um, in, in a couple of different ways 
with Joe Harwood's character, she starts off as a trauma surgeon and then something happens in her life that um, brings her to the attention of Moneypenny and she becomes a double O. And that transition came out of me thinking about this idea of a license to kill, which, you know, sounds kind of fun and sexy on the surface. But when you think about it, that's an enormous ethical responsibility to be judge, jury and executioner all in one in the field. And I began to wonder, what's the opposite of that? And I, and I thought, well, it's the Hippocratic oath to do no harm and heal everybody. So that was where Harvard's character came from, trying to uh, work out what would, it, what would it take in somebody's life to go from the Hippocratic Oath to uh, taking up a license to kill as a double O. And it's interesting that you do have these kind of philosophical reflections that, that add actually to the Fleming and Le Carre reflections that have gone uh, before Len Dayton, I suppose, would be another. Um, but mm-hmm. it, you talk about how spies have to give up their morality and their honor. Spies are liars and thieves. So, mm. so what does fealty mean to them? Everything uh, you have the kind of the character saying. Otherwise, they're nothing except liars and thieves. Without fealty, they're nothing. Uh, so th- this is clearly something that even as you were writing the book, you were thinking about this moral, ethical, and philosophical dimension, which is there in the in the very nature of the of the job, really. That's right. I really wanted to get into what is the mindset of somebody who chooses to take up this mantle of being a spy and particularly the mantle of being a double O in, in Fleming's world, because there's a double life to it. You, you leave the general course of humanity and you join the shadows and you can't share your life with anybody except those in the same field. And most of them you probably can't trust. And you are lying and stealing and killing, which, you know, in, in any other moral metric would make you the villain. But because you're doing it for a cause or an organization or a country that you're loyal to, um, you become the hero. And so loyalty then becomes everything. And being able to trust that the people giving you the orders are telling you to do the right thing becomes everything. Um, and I think especially, you know, I think, I'm sure that's, that's always been a question in the history of espionage and, and that seemed true in my research, um, but it felt particularly relevant and resonant today writing a James Bond story in the 21st century because it does go back to the beginning of Bond, you know, in Casino Royale, which, uh, you know, as you say, we're celebrating 70 years of. Um, at the end of the novel, Bond says this country, right or wrong b- business, begins a little old-fashioned. And Fleming's writing that in 1952. So for me, you know, writing this book in, in 2022, uh, the idea of, well, they do all of this for patriotism just felt too shallow an answer. So I, I really wanted to dig into what is the psychology of this and what's the cost of, of this kind of life on these characters. And of course, the, the fact that so much of this takes place in the context of the double cross, too, that Fleming writing that original novel coming right after the defection of Burgess and Maclean, King, King Philby to come, the, the, all of those Cambridge spies, John le Carre uh, is obsessed with this in, in Tinker Taylor. Uh, so that there's always that, always that sense that the person that you think that you can trust, the loyalty may actually there may actually be a mole right at the heart uh, of the entire thing absolutely and i think that you know the cambridge five and that question of who you can trust that really does um haunt spy stories and the image of espionage but even beyond that um, 
almost how we think of ourselves in Britain. You know, I think I think it still has a spectral resonance because the reason that the Cambridge Five were able to rise to power in the way that they did and then hold on to it in the way that they did was because they were from backgrounds that were considered the right backgrounds. They went to the right schools. They, they were friends with the right people. Their fathers were friends with the right people. There's this kind of um, gateway of privilege that allowed them to um, fool everybody. And I think that it kind of goes to the heart in some ways of um, the, almost the, is it double think? There's something, there's something about Britain, this idea of, um, well, it looks right and smells right and sounds right to us and therefore it is right, but we won't interrogate what we mean by right. <laughs> you know, It's this kind of, um, uh, I guess, coming pre-approved because of your background, which is still so baked into British society. And I think that's why those stories still have such power today. And, and I wonder, how does that translate in the digital age and, and actually outside Britain as well, that we think of the world of WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden and the recent alleged leaking of hundreds of classified US military documents that uh, how has uh, the digital age changed the calculation do you think well it's funny that you asked that just as my work email chimed <laughs> we are always reachable uh, i think that the digital age in some ways it takes all of our old fears and it makes them even bigger because if the notion of spying is about invading privacy. What the digital age has done has been to redefine privacy, in essence, and to almost erase it. So this notion of being constantly reachable, of your history uh, being available, your identity being able to be stolen, um, used by other people, removed entirely, I think it really raises the stakes for contemporary politics and society, but just thinking about spy fiction, it really raises the stakes within the story. And that was something that I wanted to get into, the kind of tech side of it, um, because Fleming, again, going back to Fleming, Fleming was really interested in the kind of cutting edge technology, and I really wanted to carry that through in Double or Nothing. I wanted it to feel like a very contemporary story. And I began to think about Q Branch, and I, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler to say, because um, you find out in the first few chapters, uh, Q in my novel is now a quantum computer and there's a team of people um, supporting the computer. Um, and that came from researching intelligence organization and the way that they're using quantum computing and artificial intelligence to crunch massive data set sets to do things like sift through the um, financial transactions of, of terrorists. And I just found that really um, almost poignant and, and quite telling in a way about human nature I read this research paper about all of the uses that quantum computing and artificial intelligence could be put to, which included solving the climate crisis, inventing time travel. Um, and it just seems so human and so tragic in some ways that, that what we're having to put it to is um, fighting uh, terror. Um, so I wanted to kind of draw on that very modern reality of espionage. Um, and there's also a link to... Uh, between Q, the computer, and 004, Joseph Dryden, who is a former soldier who suffers um, an IED blast in Afghanistan that damages his hearing. And Q branch augment his hearing in a way that connects him to the computer. And through that, I wanted to explore this idea of hybridity and what it means to be human and what it means to um, 
our relationship with our bodies as the digital age becomes more and more part of our ourselves and our identity. Yeah, I guess for the follow-up, uh, the next double O is probably going to be an AI character. <laughs> probably. There'll be a bit less sex. And, and, and what about Britain? That um, the, the original Casino Royale written in 1953, that was written in a coronation year. When you started out on this book, you, you obviously didn't know that you too would be publishing uh, in a coronation year in 2023. Um, what, what do you make of the contrast, Fleming, Queen Elizabeth II, um, Britain in the 50s with uh, Britain today? Um, and the, the changed environment over those 70 years. It is a remarkable synchronicity, isn't it, that here we are 70 years after Casino Royale, which he partly uh, titled Royale, uh, thinking that people would be interested in the coronation and it might help sales. Um, and now here we are with, uh, you know, continuing Bond stories and a new coronation. Um, and of course, you know, a huge amount has changed uh, in the intervening years. And that was something I really wanted to reflect with these new characters. Um, I've talked a lot about my passion for Fleming and, and my love of Fleming's writing. I first read uh, Fleming when I was about 12 and I wanted to try writing spy fiction. So I, I turned to him and he was the best teacher, really. Um, but he, he really wrote about his own time and the changes in his time, you know, with uh, post-war um, the uh, sort of increasing breakup of the British Empire and more and more colonized countries gaining independence, changing gender politics, uh, so the civil rights movement. You know, there's a huge period of, of social change reflected in his novels. And I wanted to reflect my novels, uh, sorry, reflect my time um, in my novel. I, I, like I said, I love Fleming's writing, but I can't write like him and I can't write about his time. I can only write like myself and about my time. And that was one of the main impetuses behind having this ensemble, diverse cast of double O agents um, from distinct backgrounds with distinct perspectives to reflect the world that I've grown up in in Britain, a multicultural society, um, and also hopefully to invite more people to see themselves as the hero. I mentioned earlier that when I was a kid, I used to play imaginary games where I would pretend I was James Bond. Um, and that was because there wasn't a female equivalent for me to pretend to be. Um, and I hope that by widening it out and, and having these new characters alongside Bond, um, more readers can see themselves as the hero. And it, it, it is fascinating, and it struck me as I was reading, that, I mean, the, the original book, Casino Royale, coincided with the end of Empire. Uh, and yet here we are 70 years later when all of those fears about what that would mean in terms of what Britain actually was, that Actually, Bond um, is one of the ways in which Britain continues to project its values, its sensibility around the world. Um, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that the cultures and tradition, we saw it uh, with the, the global um, broadcasting of the coronation and so on, still seem to resonate in ways that uh, perhaps we don't quite understand why. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and with, you know, with Bond's character, one of the things that I find interesting is that he is, of course, a, a British hero and a British icon. Um, and we have, you know, these, these particular kind of, um, I guess, iconic images of Bond, you know, with the Union Jack sheet or, or Daniel Craig standing in, in front of the, the fluttering flags. There's, there's this direct tie between the British state and Bond, of course. 
But he's also this globally beloved icon, as you say. He's a character whose popularity um, has spread all over the world and continues to be embraced all over the world. And I think that's partly because he is a deeper character and a more multifaceted character than perhaps um, people who, you know, maybe are more casual Bond fans um, realize. Because for so many people from so many different backgrounds with so many different interests and concerns, to latch on to this one character, there's got to be more than one thing going on uh, with that character. Um, so I think he he does represent Britain. He is a symbol for Britain, as Fleming writes in From Russia with Love. Um, he says that Britain is a myth, the myth of Sherlock Holmes, the myth of Scotland Yard, the, the myth of Churchill, the myth of James Bond. He is that myth, um, but he is also something that um, has the capacity to evolve and be inclusive and welcome everybody in, um, which I hope is modern Britain, or at least it's, it's the country that I would like to see. So the book is Double or Nothing, James Bond is Missing and Time is Running Out. It's written by my guest, Kim Sherwood, and published by William Murrow. But for now, Kim, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. This has been such a nice chat. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Listener.